say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is Early Stuart, England, Episode 67, Peace. Last time I introduced the major players in the early 1630s court. Today, we explore the issue that determined the court factions of the period, foreign policy. For all their grand strategies, Charles and Buckingham had achieved nothing other than a series of disastrous military expeditions. What's more, failures in war led to failures at home, as successive parliaments questioned the regime's management of the war. Viewed from a narrow English context, the desire for peace seems obvious. English military forces had been smashed, and Parliament now refused to finance the war effort. Charles had no option but to give up. But as we've seen in the past, from the wider European perspective, England wasn't in a bad position. When we last touched on the European story, France and Spain were in the opening stages of a titanic conflict. Their geopolitical rivalry in Italy threatened to spill out all over the continent. This could only benefit England. The small island kingdom suddenly went from being a harmless non-entity to a chip capable of shifting the balance of power one way or the other. France and Spain were so evenly matched, and England poised so close to the decisive battleground of the Netherlands, that both great powers began to woo Charles. But before we get to how Charles and his advisors took advantage of this good fortune, we'll have to update our understanding of events on the continent. First, the empire. At the moment, in other words, in 1629, things were looking pretty good for Emperor Ferdinand II. In fact, things had never looked as good since the Bohemian Rebellion ten years earlier. The Bohemians had been crushed, and the rebel king Frederick's native Palatine lands were overrun. The latest victory came when Catholic forces drove Christian IV of Denmark back home. Christian had been backed by English subsidies in theory anyway, in reality English money had been dumped into the war with France, giving Ferdinand and the Catholics free reign in Germany. But despite this run of success, or I guess because of it, Emperor Ferdinand overplayed his hand. Believing he had thoroughly crushed Protestant resistance in the empire, in March 1629 he imposed a harsh peace on his imperial subjects. The Edict of Restitution, which laid out the new settlement, attempted to right past wrongs, not just of the past ten years of war, but of decades of religious upheaval. The restitution the edict referred to was a revision of the old 1555 Peace of Augsburg. At Augsburg, the Habsburg Emperor Charles V had agreed to recognize Protestantism as a legal religion in the empire. The core principle of the agreement was that each state within the empire could freely choose to be either Catholic or Protestant. The fragile peace this produced lasted 60 years until it was smashed by the Bohemian Rebellion of 1618. Ferdinand now reaffirmed the right of each prince to choose his state's faith, but in every detail he favored a pro-Catholic reading of the old agreement. Anything not explicitly granted to Protestants in the Augsburg settlement was definitively banned. 
Most important here was the status of Calvinists, a Protestant sect that had not yet been relevant back in 1555. Significantly, the Palatine and their allies were Calvinists, not to mention the Dutch and, theoretically anyway, the English. Their faith was now outlawed in the empire. Additionally, the edict barred Protestant states from defending Protestant rights in other imperial states. In other words, the whole premise of the Protestant Union, the coalition of imperial Protestant states, was ruled illegal. Finally, the edict ordered that land confiscated from the Catholic Church had to be returned, even in Protestant states. This was a gargantuan task that, even in Catholic states, was politically and logistically unfeasible. For one thing, in most of Germany, the old church lands were now incorporated into the state. In Württemberg, for instance, a duchy in the southwest, one-third of all state assets once belonged to the church. Returning all of that land would mean effectively dismantling the state itself. Ferdinand was winning the war, sure, but he didn't have the military capital to enforce this kind of comprehensive reordering of politics. And resistance didn't just come from Protestant members of the empire. The radical new settlement opened up fissures within Catholicism, too. It was unclear who would reap the benefits of these returned church lands, the old monastic orders that had once dominated Germany, or the Jesuits, the new counter-reformation society that had sprung up since then. The bishops of the empire also stuck their noses into affairs, arguing that the land should go to them, not to Jesuit interlopers or the old, irrelevant monastic orders. The reappropriation of church lands never got off the ground, bogged down by legal battles and Catholic infighting. So Ferdinand got the worst of both worlds. His grand plan aroused animosity, but it never really produced the radical redistribution of power he planned. This was not just an emperor trying to re-establish peace in the empire. This was an attempt to redraw the empire. You may recall that from the outset, I've described the imperial crisis as existing on two axes. The first, and most obvious, being religion. Protestants and Catholics fighting over the religious rights of imperial subjects. The second, though, was a constitutional crisis. Who ruled the empire, and what was the proper balance of power between the emperor and the various states? Many Protestants, most prominently Johann George, the elector of Saxony, had not joined Frederick in his rebellion. For them, this constitutional question, not religion, was paramount, and the real danger to the imperial constitution came from Frederick and his aggressive power grab, not the emperor. The Edict of Restitution forced many loyal Protestants, like Johann George, to reconsider their position. Back in 1618, they hadn't agreed with Frederick's charge that the emperor was a power-hungry Catholic zealot. But now, in 1629, it seemed that Ferdinand was showing his true colors. All of this resulted in the emperor throwing away the advantages his generals had won him over the past ten years. On the one hand, he alienated the Protestants who had stayed loyal, especially Johann George, who had petitioned for an exemption from the proposed church land reform. He saw this as a just reward for his loyalty, but Ferdinand rejected the appeal. Elector Johann George fumed, Saxony would not be so loyal the next time a Protestant leader rallied the German states. Ferdinand had also ensured that when the time came, the Catholic forces of the empire would be less united. Many of his Catholic subjects felt the emperor was trying to use the religious conflict as a pretext to gather more power for himself. In particular, Maximilian of Bavaria eyed Ferdinand suspiciously. You'll remember that Maximilian led the Catholic League, the coalition of Catholic states within the empire. 
The military victories of the past ten years were as much Maximilian's as Ferdinand's, and the ambitious Bavarian duke did not relish seeing the emperor reap all the rewards. You recall that Christian of Denmark's Protestant armies had been defeated by two Catholic commanders. Count Tilly, who led the armies of the Catholic League, and Albrecht von Wallenstein, who led the Habsburg Imperial Army. Threatened by the growing imperial strength, Maximilian and his allies in the empire worked to undermine Wallenstein politically to ensure that his man, Tilly, controlled the empire's armies. Ever the schemer, Maximilian also reached out to France, seeing if King Louis might offer more for his services than the Emperor Ferdinand. The emperor was still his ally, but Maximilian was marshalling all the assets he had to keep Ferdinand honest. Which meant that when a new Protestant champion emerged, the emperor's Catholic coalition proved far less united than it appeared on the surface. All of this matters for us for two reasons. First, as I have hinted a few times, a new Protestant champion was about to enter the stage. Gustavus Adolphus, the Lutheran king of Sweden, had just finished his war with the Poles and was finally ready to enter the imperial fray. We'll deal with him soon, but the conditions in the empire in the early 1630s were very favorable for him. Secondly, the deterioration of the emperor's position after the Edict of Restitution created opportunities for England. English-backed Protestant armies had lost in the field, but the emperor's misstep meant that diplomatic victory was still possible. With the emperor in trouble and France and Spain willing to talk, James's old dream of a diplomatic solution to the Palatine crisis suddenly seemed possible. For all the talk of peace I've been referencing over the past few episodes, Charles had never given up on the whole point of the wars, returning the Palatine to his sister Elizabeth and her husband Frederick. Rumors that a popular rising in England might depose Charles in favor of his sister had only slightly cooled his devotion to Elizabeth he remained determined to defend her rights on the European stage. Charles and his diplomatic agents opened talks with both France and Spain to achieve that end. First came France. The war between England and France had always been unwelcome to both sides, more a product of Buckingham's bungling than a conscious plan. With Buckingham out of the picture and the rebellion in La Rochelle ended, there was no reason to continue fighting. From France's perspective, England would be a useful ally in any conflict with Spain in the Netherlands. At the very least, English neutrality should be enough to ensure the defeat of the exhausted Spanish armies in Flanders. From England's perspective, France offered a new angle on restoring the Palatine to Frederick. Years of negotiating with the Habsburgs had gotten England nowhere. But if French armies marched across the border and seized the lower Palatine from the Spanish troops who had been sitting there since early 1620, Frederick might be allowed to return home. Even better, Maximilian's Bavarian troops held the upper Palatine. If the French managed to peel Maximilian away from his imperial alliance, maybe a deal could be struck there as well. For both sides, there was much to gain from peace, and little to lose. This gave the early edge to the pro-French faction at Charles's court. Henrietta Maria, the Earl of Holland, and the diplomat Dudley Carleton all pushed Charles to secure peace with France and begin planning an anti-Spanish partnership. Progress on a treaty depended on Louis XIII getting his kingdom in order. The pacification of the Huguenots at La Rochelle had been an important first step, but the French king remained concerned about several other Huguenot towns in the south. Until he was confident they would not rise in rebellion the second he turned his back to fight Spain, he refused to make any grand plans. Eager to end the war and get France focused on Spain, the pro-French faction in England pushed Charles to reassure Louis that England would not be encouraging more Huguenot rebellions anytime soon. 
In April 1629, French and English delegates came to an agreement at Susa in Savoy. The war between England and France would come to an end. The two kingdoms agreed to resume trade between one another, as well as establish a method of resolving commercial disputes. Another clause gave Henrietta Maria power of approval over her household. Technically, this was confirmation of a clause in the original marriage treaty that Charles had violated. Finally, and most controversially, the treaty made no mention of the Huguenots. There were no guarantees for their toleration, and no expression of English support for their rights. Dudley Carleton, the man who engineered the peace, cynically noted that the Huguenots were more to be pitied than helped. His focus was the larger conflict in Europe. If a few Protestants in France had to be sacrificed to stop the Habsburg menace, so be it. Ultimately, Louis granted the Huguenot religious toleration anyway, but none of the political or military autonomy towns like La Rochelle had once enjoyed. The implication was clear. Once Louis dealt with his foreign enemies, the Huguenot would be powerless to resist royal pressure. In England, popular opinion saw the treaty as an abandonment of the Protestant cause. Charles and Buckingham had put themselves forward as saviors for the Huguenot, only to leave them twisting in the wind when it became politically expedient. The king and his pro-French advisers could only hope that in the long run, France's cooperation would silence these criticisms by paying dividends. As we've seen numerous times before, however, internal French politics complicated matters. To refresh our memories, two factions battled it out in the court of Louis XIII. In the ascendancy, you had Richelieu, who led what you might call a nationalist project. At home, he focused on centralizing political power in the hands of the king, and abroad he challenged France's national rivals, which usually meant its powerful neighbor Spain. Opposing Richelieu, and forever seeking to oust him from power, were the Devaux. They were hardline Catholics, who saw Europe in religious terms and thought France should be focused on crushing Protestantism. Importantly, this meant they took a very different view of France's relationship with Spain. Far from being a rival, the Habsburg were France's natural allies in putting down the Protestant heretics. Louis' sympathies lay with Richelieu, his trusted advisor, but he could not afford to alienate the Devaux, and so he carefully balanced the two factions. So while the peace with England freed up resources for Richelieu's long-coveted Spanish war, the Devaux looked over his shoulder, waiting for any excuse to discredit the chief minister. At first, success protected Richelieu. By the beginning of 1630, French armies were making headway against the Spanish in northern Italy, where the two powers battled over Mantua. But in the summer, things took a turn for the worse. Spain shifted its focus from the Netherlands to Italy, even transferring Spinola, their best general, to the Italian front. The always unreliable Charles Emmanuel of Savoy, who had been fighting with the French, sensed he was no longer backing a sure winner, and withdrew his forces. In the summer, a Habsburg army captured Mantua, and Louis's grand campaign seemed to be unraveling. Worst of all, late in the summer, the sickly King Louis fell ill again, leaving Richelieu vulnerable. His grand campaign had turned into a quagmire, and his great protector, the king, was temporarily sidelined. On the 30th of September, Louis paused his return home from the front to take the last sacrament. For a few days, his life hung in the balance. With Richelieu still in Italy, the Devaux, led by the Queen Mother, Marie de Medici, pounced. Taking advantage of the power vacuum in Paris, the Devaux sent off unofficial diplomatic messages to the Habsburgs. If they could peacefully resolve this Mantuan conflict while everyone else was distracted, they could pull the rug out from under Richelieu. Devaux delegates at an imperial council in Regensburg nearly succeeded in doing so. Acting with shocking independence, they signed a deal with the emperor that called for the immediate demilitarization of northern Italy, 
and a promise that France would not support any anti-Habsburg forces in the empire. If the agreement could be confirmed in Paris, it would align French foreign policy with Devaux goals. Luckily, Louis enjoyed a miraculous recovery and entered his capital in October before anything had been confirmed. Confusion reigned. The panicked Devaux scrambled to get the agreement some kind of de facto permanency before the king could denounce their negotiations. The queen mother did her part by trying to convince her son that Richelieu's escapade was ruining the kingdom. Maybe a quick victory over the Habsburgs would have been worth it, but now that the Mantuan campaign had turned into a quagmire, surely Louis could see that Richelieu had made an error. By this time, Richelieu had returned from Italy to Paris as well, and on the 11th of November, the king witnessed a dramatic standoff between his mother and his chief minister. The queen mother presented Louis with an ultimatum. Either he dismissed Richelieu, or she would go into self-imposed exile. The threat hung in the air. Though Louis retired to his hunting lodge at Versailles rather than give an answer, court rumor pointed to the queen mother coming out on top. Even Richelieu left the room, suspecting that his political career was over. But while Richelieu's enemies celebrated his imminent demise, he rushed to Versailles for one last attempt to win the king's support. Whatever he said worked, and Louis publicly reaffirmed his trust in Richelieu. The Day of the Dupes, as the incident is known, was a humiliating defeat for Marie de' Medici, who was true to her word and fled into exile. In a sense, this was a good outcome for England. The Devaux were a serious obstacle to Anglo-French cooperation. The Day of the Dupes struck a blow to their influence, and allowed Richelieu a freer hand in setting French foreign policy. France and Spain were back on a collision course. The problem was, for much of 1630, French policy had been up in the air. Charles could not afford to sit idly by, hoping that Richelieu's anti-Spanish vision would win out. Neither did he fully trust Richelieu to begin with. After all, Charles had a front-row seat to Richelieu's manipulation of his good friend Buckingham. Despite the wishes of his wife or the Earl of Holland, Charles was not willing to put all his eggs in the French basket. While Richelieu and the Devaux battled it out over 1630, Charles had begun serious talks with the Spanish. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Although it seems counterintuitive, Charles was simultaneously bargaining with both France and Spain for the same prize, the restoration of the Palatine. In fact, he was covering his bases. France might well conquer the Palatine in the near future, so it made sense to deal with them. But Spanish armies held the lower Palatine right now, so there was an opportunity to strike a deal there, too. Initially, Olivares, still the chief minister to Philip IV of Spain, drove a hard bargain. Oliveras had been in communication with Richard Weston as early as the fall of 1628, and Dimian Porter acted as the go-between, a man uniquely qualified to bridge the gap between England and Spain. 
Porter's grandfather had moved to Spain in the 1560s and married a Spanish noblewoman. He returned just before the beginning of the Anglo-Spanish War in 1585, leaving one son in Spain while bringing another back to England. Our emissary, Endymion, was the son of the one who returned to England. When James made peace with Spain in 1605, the 18-year-old Endymion joined the delegation that brought the treaty to Spain to be ratified. He acted as translator and made enough of impression at the Spanish court to win a job in the household of one of its nobles. There he served as page for three years, befriending the noble's son and heir, Don Gaspar de Guzman. If that name sounds familiar, it should. This was none other than the Count Duke Oliveras, chief minister to the Spanish crown. We have, of course, seen Porter before, as one of the guides Charles and Buckingham took with them on their trip to Spain in 1623. In the autumn of 1628, Porter found his old friend Oliveras receptive to English peace feelers. But wanting to take advantage of English desperation, Oliveras had high demands. Under no circumstances would the Dutch be involved in the treaty. Spain would continue its war against the rebels in the Netherlands, and the English would refrain from providing any support. Furthermore, Oliveras refused to promise anything about the Palatine. He did float the idea of Anglo-Spanish cooperation down the road, if the English proved their usefulness by helping Spain subdue the Dutch. For Weston, who aimed at peace with honor, this was not a promising start. But Spain was not in as strong a position as Oliveras' opening bid suggested. This was brought home a few weeks after Porter's arrival in Spain, when news hit of a disaster in the Caribbean. Dutch ships had captured the Spanish treasure fleet off the coast of Cuba the equivalent of 1.2 million pounds, found its way to Amsterdam, rather than Cadiz. This nightmare scenario highlighted the weakness of the Spanish Empire, its reliance on the precious metals of the New World. In January 1629, Porter returned to England with stories of Spanish panic and desperation. Peace was a real possibility. The Cuban disaster was not an isolated incident. Spanish naval resources were stretched thin, most of their ships were committed to the Italian campaign, leaving the Spanish coast largely unprotected. England's Royal Navy had not done much to take advantage of this, but independent raiders were enjoying a bumper crop. Spain could do little to respond, as most of Europe's timber and naval supplies came from the Baltic Sea. These resources had to pass through both Dutch and English waters before reaching Spain, and so were hard to come by. Spanish shipbuilding was practically non-existent. Despite Oliveras's tough talk, peace with England was welcomed in Madrid. The same logic that brought Spain to the negotiating table spurred Richard Weston's imagination for the possibilities of an Anglo-Spanish partnership. Spain needed products from the Baltic Sea. It also needed to get its New World bullion to its soldiers in the Netherlands. If England were to act as a middleman in these transactions, instead of blocking them, they could make a killing. In exchange for protecting the flow of goods from Dutch raiders, England would take a cut of the profits. For Weston, this was the rational response to war in Europe, not join the mayhem, but profit from it. In the summer of 1629, a Spanish emissary, Don Carlos Coloma, arrived in England to continue the peace talks. Coloma had briefly served as ambassador to England before the war. He was one of the diplomats who tried to convince James that Buckingham sought to push him off the throne in 1624. More importantly, Coloma had befriended Richard Weston before the war, and the pair set to work hammering out a treaty. For Weston, this was a race against time. He needed to secure peace with Spain before his pro-French rivals beat him to the punch and committed Charles to an anti-Spanish alliance with France. 
As we've just learned, England and France signed the Treaty of Susa, weeks before Coloma's arrival. Any day now, this might be extended into an anti-Spanish partnership. The structure of the administration complicated matters for Weston. John Cook was the Secretary of State, responsible for handling royal correspondence with foreign diplomats. But, as you may recall, Cook was a Calvinist, with an inclination towards a French alliance against Spain. So Weston did not relish working through official channels. An alternative presented itself when the Flemish artist Peter Paul Rubens arrived in London in June. Rubens lodged with Balthazar Gerbier, a Dutch collector living in the city. Both men had interests outside of the art world. Rubens had been sent by Isabella, the Habsburg ruler of the Spanish Netherlands. Meanwhile, Gerbier had diplomatic experience as well. He had long served the Duke of Buckingham as a personal collector, scouring the empire for great works. His trips also gave him the opportunity to act as Buckingham's unofficial spokesman in a variety of diplomatic ventures. Gerbier now facilitated private meetings between Charles and Rubens, with Richard Weston sitting in. As one of Europe's leading patrons of the arts, it was entirely natural that the king should meet with the renowned painter. In fact, Charles did take the opportunity to commission Rubens to paint the ceiling of the banqueting house at Whitehall, a project completed a few years later. But the main topic of discussion was not art, but peace. The direct connection to Charles allowed Weston to fast-track negotiations and open the door to far greater concessions than the pro-French faction would have liked. Still, a satisfactory settlement proved elusive. Although both England and Spain were motivated to end the war, the Palatine remained the great unresolved issue. The Lower Palatine protected the Spanish road, the all-important land route that connected the Netherlands to Spanish possessions in the Mediterranean. Now that French armies threatened the Spanish road, the territory's value only increased. Returning it to the Calvinist Frederick, as Charles demanded, was asking a lot. Not to mention the Emperor, Ferdinand. If Frederick were returned home, Ferdinand would have to rescind the imperial ban that made him an outlaw. This raised the old question of how much influence Philip had over his cousin. Could Spain guarantee an imperial reconciliation? Finally, there was the problem of Maximilian of Bavaria, who held the Upper Palatine. Even if, by some miracle, Philip and Ferdinand agreed to restore Frederick, there was no guarantee that Maximilian would play along. He was already in talks with the French, and may well throw in his lot with them, rather than agree to give up his conquered lands. Arthur Hopton, a English diplomat in Madrid, summed up the prospects of success. Everybody must be contented to forego his interests to fit us, which is hard to believe. Olivares won an early victory, in that he got Charles to agree that the final treaty would be hammered out on Spanish home turf in Madrid. You may recall that this was the inverse of Salisbury's Great Peace Treaty of 1604, negotiated at Somerset House in England. In the fall of 1629, Charles dispatched one of Richard Weston's closest allies to Spain to negotiate the deal, Francis Coddington. You may recall, Coddington was the one important figure in 1630s politics that we didn't have time to delve into last time. We just barely have enough time here, but as he acted with quite a bit of independence in drafting the peace, this is a good time to bring him into the story. Francis Coddington was born in 1579 to a family of sheep farmers in Somerset. The Coddingtons were on the fringes of the gentry class, their woolen contributions to the cloth industry just barely keeping them from having to work their lands themselves. Young Francis was lucky enough to secure a private education in the household of a more wealthy relative. 
His first experience in public service came on the staff of the new English embassy in Spain, set up in 1605. There, Coddington soaked up the language and the ins and outs of the Spanish court. Like Charles, 20 years later, the wealth and opulence of the Habsburgs made an impression on the young sheepherder. In 1609, he replaced Charles Cornwallis as ambassador. In fact, he had been the de facto ambassador for quite some time before that, as Cornwallis suffered from a series of ailments. Coddington's duties during this period mostly revolved around settling disputes between English merchants and the Spanish crown. This work seemed to wear on him. On the one hand, he had little sympathy for the greedy merchants, but on the other, he represented their interests well enough to earn the animosity of Spanish officials. He was even briefly imprisoned at one point. By 1611, Coddington had enough, and asked James to bring him home. As we've covered in this podcast, John Digby, the Earl of Bristol, eventually replaced him, leading to the drama of the Spanish match. Back in England, Coddington's experience and connections in Spain made him a valuable political asset. The Howards cultivated him, and he joined their extensive network. Luckily for him, he managed to avoid getting caught up in the dramatic fall of the Howard family, though. When Digby returned from Madrid to present evidence at the Overbury trials, Coddington went back to Spain to stand in as ambassador. He ended up staying in Spain for six years, safely absent from England for the disgrace of the Howards. Coddington's run of good luck continued when he finally returned to England in 1622. Since Prince Charles was all set to marry the Infanta of Spain, it seemed prudent to have a man with Spanish experience in his inner circle. James appointed Coddington to be the prince's personal secretary. This was just in time for Coddington to join the prince on his merry adventure to Spain. Of course, the Spanish marriage fell apart, but Coddington and Charles became good friends. Coddington had a reputation for being the sharpest wit at court, and disarmed everyone with his perpetually good-natured humor. He was also a keen linguist and a voracious reader. His ability to pick up Spanish early in his career had not been a fluke. He was able to apply his gift for language equally to his work and his wordplay. Despite his run-ins with Spanish officials, Coddington retained his respect for Spanish power, and so Richard Weston found him a useful ally. The fact that he was friends with the king didn't hurt either. Through Weston's patronage, Coddington landed a spot on the Privy Council in November 1628 and became Chancellor of the Exchequer in March 1629. Therefore, when Charles selected Coddington to lead the peace delegation to Madrid, it was a major win for Weston and the pro-Spanish faction. Spain would require concessions that men like Dudley Carleton or John Cook would consider a betrayal of the Protestant cause. So Weston instructed Coddington to communicate with him and the king directly, not through the normal channels where the pro-French faction might intercept communiques. Initially, though, even Coddington found it difficult to make headway with the Spanish. The key problem was trust. In principle, both sides seemed amenable to a swap. Spain would help England restore the Palatine to Frederick, and England would withdraw support for the Dutch. But neither side was willing to act until the other had taken the first step. After a few weeks, Coddington reported the stalemate back home. He was pessimistic about finalizing a treaty anytime soon. But Charles remained surprisingly enthusiastic about the negotiations. In his reply, the king authorized Coddington to make a new concession. Forget withdrawing aid to the Dutch, Charles was willing to help the Spanish conquer the rebellious provinces in exchange for the Palatine. This remarkable reversal of generations of English policy requires a little bit of explanation. The 1625 treaty that had created the Anglo-Dutch alliance barred both nations from negotiating peace with Spain separately. 
This made sense, as Spain's best hope for success lay in driving a wedge between the two. But the two longtime allies were now drifting apart. Frustrated by England's lack of military success, the Dutch had already begun to move towards France as their main ally. This only made sense considering the unfurling struggle between France and Spain. Meanwhile, the internal logic of the Anglo-Dutch alliance was wavering. Competing commercial interests were starting to crowd out religious affinity. English fishermen complained that Dutch ships trawled their waters with impunity. The trading companies of the two allies battled as well. The Dutch complained that the merchant adventurers muscled them out of what was supposed to be an allied trading port in London, while the merchant adventurers complained that their warehouses in Amsterdam were constantly raided by Dutch officials. Globally, the English and Dutch also squared off in several commercial theaters. In the Baltic, the North Sea, the Atlantic, and the Far East, their merchants butted heads, their mutual animosities seeping back home. For Charles, getting the Palatine back in exchange for neutralizing the Dutch was looking less like a compromise and more like killing two birds with one stone. The defenders of the Protestant cause, men like Dudley Carleton or Thomas Rowe, urged Charles to stick with the Dutch alliance. But for Richard Weston, who saw England's future in its commerce, the Dutch were a bigger threat than the Spanish. For now, Charles agreed. He saw the Dutch alliance as disposable. In May 1630, Coddington secured a provisional truce. Charles would mediate a solution to the Dutch problem, and Philip would deal with the Palatine. In the meantime, trade between England and Spain would recommence. On paper, this was palatable to the Protestant causers. Charles had not publicly committed himself to any course. But the agreement contained a secret clause, known only to Coddington and Charles. England pledged to join Spain in a war of conquest in the Netherlands. Spain would front the bill for the war, and the two nations would share the spoils of victory. Whether this was the outline of a potential campaign in the future, or a necessary clause of the treaty, was a bit ambiguous. It's also unclear how committed Charles was to this potential Dutch war. In the post-Buckingham era, he tended to approach foreign policy as an opportunist. Getting chummy with Spain served his interests now, but who knew what the future held? Secret treaties were even easier to abandon than the public kind. The treaty was not finalized until the winter of 1630-1631, but Charles had brought an end to the wars he had helped engineer since 1624. However, this did not mean that England withdrew from the conflicts on the continent. As we'll soon see, opportunities abounded for the opportunistic Charles. The flexibility he had won by securing the peace treaties of his episode would allow him to take full advantage. But before we get to that, we'll have to round out the domestic situation at the beginning of the 1630s. Next time, we'll begin with the men who have been absent from our narrative since the dissolution of Parliament in 1629. Charles no longer had to deal with his radical Puritan subjects, now that their parliamentary leverage had been taken away from them. But that did not mean they were going away anytime soon. They had simply found other places to assemble and cause mischief. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.